Welcome to 100 Proof. I'm Kevin Rose. This is your NFT weekly variety show where we cover all things NFTs. We talk about individual projects, new unique drops, trends, where things are going. And of course, I have two great co-hosts for this episode. Always have Derek on the show. Derek, good to see you. Good to see you, Uh, sir. Got the got the hat back. We I snuck it that. in against Mao's in. wishes. No one no, knows no. until this this episode goes live. Our producer Mao uh, has a, uh, a, a hard fast rule that no hats on the show. But you know, everyone's it's Friday. It's Friday, it's Friday so. dude. You got to sneak yeah. it in there. So at uh, Derek is at Derek E D W S on the Twitter, and of course we have Sam NFT Stats at Punk nine zero five nine. Sam, good to have you on the show. Can we just take a minute? Sam has been crushing these dailies. Can we just, can we give this dude flowers? These are amazing. Uh, Sam, what, what has it been like, man? I love it. Like I'd say two things. One is for me, it's, it's made me so much more, just so much more motivated to try to do in-depth research and come up with interesting insights. Cause I know I have a, a public audience to, to, to present to. And I think that's been, that's been really awesome, but it has been a lot of work. I've been getting up before five in the morning every day and, you know, every day trying to come up with a 10 minute show and interesting insights. And then I see something that I want to run the numbers. So, you know, it's both time consuming as well as very rewarding. So enjoying it so far. Sam heads up our research department, uh, at proof. And, um, you know, I, I asked him yesterday, I was like, dude, do not burn yourself out. Like you, you are, this is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort, but it, it shows, you know, we also have a team that supports him on the back end that does all the editing of the videos too. We should mention shout out to them for all the, the additional help and, and lift there. But uh, yeah, I mean, for people that don't know, you truly, truly, truly have to check out the proof daily NFT countdown that Sam hosts it is absolutely awesome. Um, it is 10 minutes ish of just like all the information you need to know from what's moving on the, in the NFT world to new, interesting drops. It, it this is no, no, no joke. I use it every day I use it <laughs> to too. get up to speed yeah. on what is going on. So Sam, thank you for that. Um, actually let's roll a little tiny clip. I know Mal wanted to do that, uh, our producer and show a little clip of, of what this is all about. VV checks, quick reminder, there are 16,027 of them. They were minted for $8 about four weeks ago. The price has gone parabolic. Floor price got as high as 1.5 ETH yesterday. We're at 1.3 ETH now. Quick reminder, let's just go over VV checks. You start with these 80 check NFTs. You can convert them into a unique 80 check and then into 40, 20, 10, 5, 4, 1. You know, each step requires burning two of the prior. Once you get to that one, you can burn 64 of those to get to the famous, the all exciting black check. Now, what is the market currently pricing these black checks at? The market's currently saying each of these black checks, all three of them, will be worth $8.8 million each or 5,328 ETH. You know, it's saying that it's worth three times the ETH of the biggest X copy sale ever. You know, that was it, 1,600 ETH. So really, the market is currently saying that these black checks are going to be perhaps the biggest NFT ever outside of Alien Punks and a few others. All right. So if you want to tune into that and get notifications, the cool thing that we did at Proof is we created a dedicated Twitter account that you can follow and you can turn notifications on and you know you're not going to get any of the random tweets. It's only new podcast release uh, releases. So it's at Proof Podcasts on Twitter. Turn on notifications and you'll, you'll get a push anytime there's anything new that Sam puts out or we put out on 100 Proof. So it's, it's going to be pretty awesome. And testament to, uh, to to Sam for putting the industry on his back and the team that, uh, Kevin, you've assembled around that department. Uh, I'm 
just like you mentioned this, I'll just flag this again. I, it saves me hours of scrolling and finding and sourcing stuff when I know I can rely on an industry expert to put, who's putting the industry on his back and curating the most relevant and salient news on an, any given day. So uh, thank you, Sam, for your service. It's much appreciated. little housekeeping stuff before we move on to the show. Really important, uh, the Proof of Conference is now live for everyone to purchase tickets. Um, we're about half sold out, and I expect that to accelerate down to the, the final sale. It's proof.xyz slash POC. And uh, yeah, just to mention real quick on on who we have speaking there and some of the fun stif- stuff we have planned, um, some absolute phenomenal speakers uh, that are in the lineup. Uh, least of not is, is, is obviously Beeple is the headliner here in that um, we've got a really fun thing that we're doing with Beeple where Beeple has agreed to come on stage, do one of his, of his live everydays, but not to show you his design process, but actually have you as attendees influence the design process by shouting out ideas. We're going to bring some really crazy models in. We're going to have a couple beers on stage. And then 100 people in the audience that are attending Proof of Conference, you checked in with your badge, you're actually seated right there, are going to win this NFT. So it's a way to get your hands on a Beeple. Um, and then I will say also just some great other speakers, Alexis Ohanian, Snowfro, Gary V. We got the Yuga co-founders on there, uh, Greg and Wiley. We got John and Matt, founders of Larva Labs, CryptoPunks, you know, Frank from D-Gods, G-Money, also in Seneca. Hold on. This is an insane. This is literally Derek. the Coachella. <laughs> this <laughs> Just don't, don't do me dirty like that, Kevin. All right. But what I will say is this lineup is totally bonkers. This is like the Coachella of the digital object NFT space. So I don't know what strings you pulled to pull this together, but this is like the who's who of our entire industry. Honestly, well, we got more crazy stuff coming. There's this about half the speakers. So it's going to get even more nuts from here. But I will say the thing that I'm excited about is this is like we're, we're going to learn a lot here, right? And we've got a one-track conference. We've got some phenomenal speakers. But the nighttime events and stuff, we're doing a concert there. We've got some crazy live minting opportunities outside of that Beeple. So we're going to do some other live mints there as well, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then we just are like having fun with it. We're not taking ourselves too seriously. So I think a couple things that are important to, to mention. This is We're going to mention Moonbirds and Proof stuff, obviously, while we're at the conference. But this is not an exclusive Moonbirds or Proof conference. The reason why we're having the Yuga founders on there is because we consider ourselves Switzerland. We want to talk about all the projects. We want to be welcoming to all the different communities. Um, we have the, uh, who is it, the hamburger truck? Um, fuck, 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 I'm forgetting the, the, we're doing the hamburger truck from, Sam, help me out here. No, no, we're doing it in that too, but we're also doing the, the um, Goblin Town. Goblin Town, we're doing the Goblin Tam, Town uh, uh, hamburger truck. So it's like, let's embrace all these different communities. And, we're, and when I said taking ourselves not too seriously, one of the things we found out is that in the second day of the conference, there, uh, the new Zelda is coming out, which is not even related to NFTs at all. But we have some actually some fans, and we're like, screw it, at night, we're going to have one of the big, massive tents that can hold a thousand people. And everyone's going to bring their switches and we're going to be playing Zelda till midnight. Like, so awesome. And we're going to have beers and drinks. And we're all going to be sitting around this is, just geeking out. This it's a is going to be, this gonna be, gonna be, be a awesome. fun geek fest. You also have, don't you have a, isn't the Link hats like part of the traits yes. of the Moomerts hat? You're going to well, have to do some. they're not the Link hats. They're the hero hats. Oh, so they're the hero hats. I believe uh, <laughs> uh, Nintendo owns the trademark That's for Link. That's true. 
So fair, fair play, <laughs> thank you, fair Derek, play. For, uh, no problem. For getting me in trouble. They've there. got the hero, tri- the hero, uh, the hero caps, yes. which are awesome. So you're gonna have to do something special for those guys. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. Got to do something real fun for them. Anyway, it's gonna be a fun time. Check it out. Uh, we would love to see you there. But let's uh, get onto the show, shall we? Let's do it. All right. You want to talk about the hack? I mean, that is. Let's that is... talk, dude. Let's talk about the hack. Um, and I'll say like pro- a good segue because I just actually minted my proof of conference ticket using delegate cash yesterday. And, um, I know that that's, um, that's been something that you've been thinking deeply about over the last couple of days, but man, I, I, I haven't been, had a chance to jump into any of your spaces. I know we were chatting on the phone the day of, but maybe you can just give a quick, I don't know, 60 second summary for what went down and, and where we're at today in this state of play. A lot of the reactions I got was like, I can't believe this happened to Kevin. Like, you know, how could he fall for something like this? Like things like that. And, and to be honest, um, they're all right. Like I, I, I know best practices. I can list them all off for you in terms of what I should have done. Like it's on me. What happened is, and I have this wallet that is like, you know, hammered in steel, stored in a safe place offsite, all the, the good security stuff. Every once in a while, I pull, I pull it out of the vault if I'm doing a sale, right? So it's like my, my, my grail stuff, stuff I don't want to touch. And I pulled it out that morning because I wanted to sell a couple things and, and I was think, rethinking my collection in some ways. And I went and listed a couple things and I just happened to have it plugged in my computer. And then I was on a call at the same time and I clicked through on a website that I shouldn't have clicked on. And in my head, I never think about the security stuff because I have, I, that's always in cold storage. I'm never thinking about it, Right. And so in my head, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to like log into the site and see if I'm, you know, available, like anything, any of these NFTs are eligible. I'm eligible for any of these NFTs. I log in, I sign a signature. I didn't do an approval. I didn't do, you know, I'm just signing a signature. The signature was signing to sell NFTs on OpenSea. I didn't even look at it. And it was, it was so foolish. It was just, but it was right time, right place. And then boom, all my squigs were gone. Brutal, but could have literally happened to anyone. I mean, these these attacks are getting very sophisticated. I think um, obviously there's best class, best in class ways to segregate your assets and do it the right way. But I would say virtually everyone I know plays it fast and loose around some of these like vectors of attack. And so don't beat yourself up too hard. I mean, I can list off a bunch of folks who could have been in the exact same situation as you with um, just like a, you mentioned at right time, right place. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where when you have a collection and, and you just want to do something quickly, it's like, okay, let's imagine how long does it take to create a new Ethereum address on a ledger and then go and transfer that asset to the ledger and then authorize and sign with OpenSea that you are creating a new account and then you know putting in an email address for notifications and then listing that object, authorizing the collection to have access to the object, then putting a sales price. I mean, it's an additional, you know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to list something independently from where you store everything else, right? And in my head, I'm just like, I just want to sell a couple things, like just bang, 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 done, you know? And I'm, I'm confident I know what the OpenSea website address is. Like, I'm not going to get hacked there. I just happened to have it open and went to a dumb website and did that. So it's, but lesson learned, like I have now, you know, I'm doing multi-sig now, which I didn't do before. I'm doing um, a real, real cold storage wallet that will never, ever touch a computer that you just send stuff to. 
and that will never be used to connect to any website. So really high value stuff that you put in there and you're just like, I'm not going to ever touch this. I know there's no chance in the next six months I'm not going to want to sell anything here. And and so there's there's some stuff I've I've implemented now. But, you know, so it goes. I'm I, It's not lost on me that I feel very fortunate to be in this position to even have these NFTs to begin with. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm bummed. But uh, thankfully, a lot of my bigger stuff that I held um, in terms of grails, like, you know, my one on one X copies and and some of the other things that are are like my, you know, zombie punk and other things like they never got touched. So got very, very lucky there. Could have been worse. Could have been, been worse. worse. Well, um, I mean, this teases this up nicely, but like you're kind of doing this fresh, clean slate of collecting, right? Like you're kind of starting not from scratch. You've got some amazing, we were just going through them earlier. You've got some amazing NFTs, Kev, still. So uh, you're, you're going to be fine. But I would say, I'm curious if like, has this preempted you now that you have this fresh slate to start thinking differently about how you want to collect in the future? It actually has. You know, I, I did, I, I've been selling some NFTs uh, and people are like, oh, oh my God, Kevin's selling, he's getting out. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is I, in my head, I was like, okay, I hadn't looked at my entire, you know, portfolio of NFTs in a while. I, and so I, I went through it and I asked myself like, how much exposure do I want to each artist? And then I realized like I'm way under my squig allotment that I want, <laughs> right? So I'm going to rebalance things a bit. And it's, it's, if you had to take, you know, 20 NFTs or, or so on a, to, to you, to, with you to a desert island, what would make the cut and what wouldn't, right? And why? And so I realized I have a lot of X copies. I'm going to pare that down to like my five favorite, which is huge. And then there's, there's things that like, you know, I want a one-on-one Matt Cain, but do I need to have his art blocks piece? So I have his one-on-one, but you know, so, you know, I can, I can kind of m- make some changes there. And like, I have multiple anti-cyclones by William upon, like maybe I'll just pick my best one and save it. And, you know, I've got a, a few Tyler Hobbs. I'm definitely going to save those. And, you know, I'm going through just really thinking about if there's an artist I love and I have five of them, do I need five? And, and if I take, take that down to two or three, can I take that capital and go, back in, into squigs. But there's another question I think that's really important for, for collectors to consider in a down, especially in a down market is when liquidity dries up, if you need to sell these things at some point, you know, what is that, that time horizon going to look like for that sale to, to occur? And, and if you want more liquidity, some of these collections can be quite challenging to find it, right? Like I'll give you an example, like autoglyph's floor was at a half a million dollars and then, you know, I dropped my price down a little bit and a little bit more, and I'm still haven't found a buyer for that autoglyph, right? And it's because there's not, you know, there's not a hundred people that are super excited to buy autoglyphs right now. Historically, they're a very important piece to add to a collection, but people that wanted to fill their bags have probably already filled them, right? And so the question as a, as a collector and something I'm starting to reconsider is if I'm going into a new artist, what I used to do, let's just say there was an art blocks drop. And I, and I found this new artist I was excited about. What I used to do is I would buy like one floor and then I would go for one super rare one. But what I realized is when liquidity dries up, those super rare ones that traded a premium, let's call it, you know, five, seven, eight X from the floor, those are much harder to sell because the liquidity is always at the floor. And like, I've seen this with my CryptoPunks, you know, I have like seven CryptoPunks and I want to sell a few of them off. It's, I can sell floors all day long. There's a ton of liquidity there but it's way hard for me to sell my zombie, right? Like that's, that's going to take time. 
So I'd be curious to get your guys' take on this, like, you know, floor for liquidity and collecting versus grails for holding long-term. Like uh, my win airdrop from Xcopy, that's a one-on-one, holding that for a decade plus, my kids will probably, be, that'll be passed down to my kids, right? That's one I'm never gonna sell. And I'm fine with having a one-on-one Xcopy and just holding on that. Man, you just said, you just said, you, you just dropped so, so many interesting things in, in what you were just talking about. And I think, I mean, f- for me at least, if I'm not buying a floor, I have to love the art. Like, that, right. I just had, you know, like I, like my pink hair punk, it's not a floor punk. It's not a zombie, but it's, it's kind of, you know, it trades at a pretty sharp premium to floor. And that's just cause my wife was like, this is the only punk I like is pink hair. So I got one, you know, cause my wife's never said she likes an NFT before and <laughs> right. it became my PFP and I'm not going to sell it, you know, but I think if you're someone who knows going in that this is something you're not going to hold forever, uh, like I, I always go for a floor or at the very least make sure it's like at least something I really, really like and I'm fine holding on to. Um, Cause what you're saying is completely true. I mean, and the other thing is don't be deceived by floor prices. You know, the autoglyph floor has been in like 300 ETH range, but there hasn't been a single trade for four months. Uh, and the trades that did happen four months ago were in that 150 to 200 range. You know, right. so I think sometimes, you know, I, I'm a big believer in floor prices being super relevant, but I think the less liquid, the less liquid the collection, the more you really got to focus on where the trades are happening um, in order to, you know, I think like as an, as a data analyst with NFTs, the less liquid collection, the more I just look at, at trades to give me indication. If I'm looking at punks or, or apes, I think floor price is the best metric, but you know, especially with art blocks, you know, I, I, I reported on the, on the daily show, a Unigrid sold uh, a couple days ago, 16 ETH, you know, they're 450 in the collection. And they look at the trades and they had, there hadn't been a single sale in two months. And the last sale was the same buyer, you know? So yeah, you just got to, you, you, you got to be careful when you think about that value in your head. I think that's a big piece of it. Mm. Yeah, I'll add just super quickly. I tend to agree with everything that you guys are both saying. I, like to me, the, the place where buyers and, and sellers are more most likely to match is going to be at the floor of a collection. And so I tend to, if it's a collection that I feel very strongly about and it's networked, I tend to really either go there or at the very top end uh, where I think prices can appreciate quicker and like with more velocity and can be, can, can create some like unbounded outcomes at the very top end. Like an example would be an alien crypto punk, um, or like one of the hyper cross hyper, uh, traits for chroma squiggles, like the hyper ribbed or the hyper bolds or the hyper pipes. Um, but that middle ground, especially when liquidity dries up is kind of where you don't really want to be unless, and this is where like, I think it just depends unless the collection it's like very collection specific, unless the collection has been networked enough where the market participants for that collection are sophisticated to how rarity breaks down. And I think really there's only a few collections I can say that have done that. I would say it's, it's crypto punks for sure. Like we're seeing it now with hoodie punks. There's, there's like, there's buyers and sellers right at the, at a very rare trait of crypto punks. I think six or seven have sold what Sam in the last 48 hours or so. I would say Bored Apes is another one. We constantly see pr- these premiums to floor for these sought after traits. And then I would say Chromey Squiggles is like the third one that I would put in that list, which is, you know, we're still seeing regular hyper rainbow standards sell for 130 ETH, 140 ETH. Um, and so I think it's very collection specific. And I think some are mo- like some market participants for these collections are more sophisticated than others. But typically, I, I agree with both of you, which is the floor is the place where buyers and sellers are meeting. 
the, the two things I'd add one Derek is that spirit of Zuki's um, mm. have just have yeah. a mind a mind of their own that well collection has had so many trades yeah. at 100 and male spirit of Zuki's are not 200 or higher the other thing is I think there's a lot where you have to understand your own personality and what I mean by that is the liquidity for grails is when things are pumping and a lot of people really are not good at selling when things are on fire that's when you're like right. this is the next million dollar NFT you know and I think the people who do grails well are able to sell in those moments, you know? And for someone like me, I just know myself. I, I generally like to sell when things, like things get slow. I'm like, why do I own this? I want, you know, so for my personality, owning grails or owning mid tiers is just not a good strategy, mm -hmm. you know? And you just gotta know yourself. The guys who I know who, 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 sell, who, who make money in grails are the best NFT sellers in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and they move them when they see the demand. And I think we also have to really consider how speculative the asset is. Like the more it is about speculation, the more the higher end pieces I get scared off by because the, the, the floors can quickly drop out on ones that are around speculating. Like for me, PFPs are the scariest place to buy really expensive grails. You know, when it because I, I just if momentum changes out of that game, and I think it does a lot more than the the art world, right? Then, then you're you're left holding a really high value asset that that you know could be cut in half or more, right? And and, it's, and then you're just like it's catching a falling knife. It's just like it's really I have a place um, not to play. I have a piece I've been working on for six months that's coming out on Monday. Um, that kind what? of what that articulates oh, an article. Oh, I think an you're article. dropping an NFT. <laughs> you guys will be the first <laughs> to know when I drop an NFT. Uh, no, I've got an article coming out on Monday that articulates some of why that might be happening, uh, Kevin, and structurally how the markets have been pricing these things, intuiting them to be slightly different and what they're optimizing for. Um, so I'm excited to get that piece out, but um, I think it goes into more detail about the why behind what you're describing, Kevin. One other thing I just want to throw in is that I think brokerage services, and I, I have a friend who's doing this, EB7 on Twitter. I'm, I'm going to get him on the podcast because he's just doing such crazy things right now as far as the business he's building in brokerage, mainly focused on apes and azukis. The problem with the current structure is when you list an NFT, the value goes down. You know, people really like want to know what the market's thinking and always turn to the floor first. You know, so I think. I think there's a market out there for people who, you know, I'm too lazy to start going on Discord and trying to figure, I've got too much else going on to try to figure out who the buyers and sellers are for certain NFTs. But I think there are guys who really understand that market and who can do this for you. I, I just think that this brokerage service, I'm seeing it with a couple friends of mine. And, and I just think there is something there because if you know where the buyers and sellers are, like moving an autoglyph becomes a lot easier than just going on to OpenSea and lowering your floor price every day. Derek is just uh, someone that is filled to the brim with secrets. Like, dude. So yesterday, <laughs> yesterday he's like, "Hey, congrats on that uh, the X copy sale," and because I, I sold an X copy for two hundred fifty ETH, and and um, and it was an addition. I was like really pumped about. It. I'm like, dude, this just happened. Like, how did you find out? He's like, I, I got my I got my ways, and like I'm like, how are you tracking my wallets, dude? Like, and you I have alerts set up, my friend. Uh, as I'm sure Sam does too. This. You know, um, but I've got I've got alerts set up on a lot of these uh, on, on a lot of wallets that I'm tracking. Context. You start tracking your wallets. Site, yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so uh, we're gonna do this high level because uh, I don't think any three of us have spent a ton of time on this, and it's, it really is just like a function of this space being a whirlwind and this really just popping up in the last forty eight hours. But NFTs are on Bitcoin, and um, which is wild. And I would say um, I. 
I have a, a, a brilliant uh, analyst investor on my team. His name's Arad. If folks are interested in following him, uh, he's very technical, very deep on Web3 gaming, uh, and also very just um, just loves going into like these these fun technical holes and coming out at the other end with some with some insights. Uh, his name is A-R-A-D-T-S-K-I on Twitter, but he broke it down for me. And apparently there's this project called The Ordinals. And The Ordinals have essentially created a standard to turn arbitrary data attached to individual sats in a transaction into a non-fungible asset on Bitcoin. And so The Ordinals is the company and it's the platform that displays these NFT-like things. Um, and this is really only made possible because... Bitcoin implemented a soft fork called Taproot in 2021. And at that point, it basically carved out extra room on a Bitcoin block intended for witness signatures, which is 75% cheaper than the space used for transactions themselves. And so what the ordinals did is just start plugging in. They, it now allows for 4.2 megabytes of media to go into these blocks. Um, and so people through the ordinals have just started throwing in media into these blocks and treating it as kind of like an NFT. And so in the same way on Ethereum that NFTs use the ERC721 standard on Bitcoin and through this Ordinals product, they're calling them inscriptions. And so there's all of these inscriptions that are getting written to these blocks and it's really pissing off Bitcoin people. Um, I mean, Bitcoin has always been very resistant to change in terms of its block space. They've been very, very hesitant to, to even push code that could change the direction of hard sovereign money to something else. And so now that these blocks are being filled with monkey pictures and crazy stuff, it's really setting this like division in place in the Bitcoin core community, which has you been, guys love that. It's I kind been, of love that they're pissed. <laughs> it's been wild. Um, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't even think there's really a market for these things right now. I think it's all being done OTC and discord channels. And I think some of it is even selling for ETH, uh, being denominated in ETH, which is totally ironic. Which is extra hilarious. Which is yeah, extra exactly. hilarious. Um, but there is something fascinating about the this hard-coded set of rules being used for for something that was never the intent, um, and uh, and it kind of working in its own weird, crazy way. Um, so I don't know if you guys have strong opinions or thoughts on this, but I just thought it was a crazy story that we had the flag. Yeah, I'm staying away from it just because I. I I don't know. It feels like you have an entire community of maxis that are pushing against it that don't want it to happen. So you've got a lot of anger there. And then it's like a wedge into, you know, their ecosystem. It's unique, but I don't know. I, I just, until I see some major artists and marketplaces popping up around it, it feels like it's early days. And I don't know if it has the same historic kind of, call it, provenance of kind of like the early NFTs that we saw on ETH, right? Like, I, I don't know that it feels like that um, meaningful in terms of wanting to spend, don't get me wrong, if, if, if there's a way to go and collect a few of these for, you know, a couple hundred dollars, like, let's have fun, let's go. But like, I'm not spending any time, a type of meaningful money on this, on this idea. You know, I think there's something to be said for the idea of, you know, this is just thinking as like an analyst about pricing, like, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, obviously Bitcoin has the ultimate provenance in terms of blockchain and crypto. And maybe that combined with NFTs, there's something there, but it's not like 
you know, these things are already, I think one thing about the, about the crypto or about the NFT space is there is a, fair, a lot of money in the space, you know, and you're already seeing stuff trade at like $20,000, $15,000. So, so you're not just going in and taking these flyers on like $20 NFTs. You know, the same thing happened with, with, with Canto, you know, Canto had all this excitement and merge around it and within, you know, and then suddenly an NFT traded for, it was something like 28 ETH, you know, like $50,000, you know? And so it's like, there's this view you can go in and be early and take a flyer on something and see, but like, th those aren't the price points that we're talking here. You know, we're already talking 28 ETH, which is, you know, that's higher than the vast majority of good art blocks have ever had a sale ever, you know? So I think like it, it doesn't feel quite as, I don't know, that, that, that's just one of, one of the things that, that I was thinking when thinking, is this something to, to dig too deep into? The thing that, that is, is tough is you're taking, you're, you're introducing a second vertical of risk. Like you have risk around the art and whether that is going to be sought after long term. So the artist and the person behind the actual image. And then you're, you're introducing chain risk as well, right? So, you know, I, I, I don't like that. That's, 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 that's too much risk for me. Like, I'll give you a great example. Like, I have a bunch of NFTs on Tezos, right? Some fantastic work. William Mapons and some Johns with all the Js and some like the really early stuff that's that's fantastic that I love. But I've seen, you know, I I don't know if that has the same market that it did, you know, a year and a half ago. Where if I go onto Tezos and I try and sell some of these higher end pieces, are those collectors still there? And I, I don't know the answer to that. But like you can imagine a world where if you're buying these things for a lot of money on Bitcoin and the demand side dries up, not only for the artist, but also for the chain itself, like you're in a pretty bad place. Like there's no real credible way to bridge assets from a dying chain. I'm not saying that Tezos is dying, but I'm saying like a chain that is falling out of fashion into um, Ethereum, right? Like I haven't seen anything that is wildly accepted as, as like this is, this is okay, right? Like locking up an asset on one chain and then bridging it over to the other that maintains the value between chains. Like I just haven't seen it. And like, this is a provenance building technology. And I mean, that is an in integral part of like why people are willing to store wealth in some of these objects is you can trace the lineage of the provenance back to all of its sales, all of its bids, all of its, um, you know, whole previous holders when it was minted and, Disrupting that by trying to move it to different chains has just really been a problem that's not been solved, um, which which throws into whack some of the the let's just call it like the practic the practical decision making around wanting to store value in these objects. So going from kind of the 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 weird tinkering that's happening on Bitcoin blocks to something that's just reaching a crescendo of like total activity is uh, the open edition meta. And, um, and what we've seen with folks like Jack Butcher and, uh, and a number of others. So this has been wild, dude. I mean, this last week and a half has just been, it's just been crazy, crazy town. So what's your sense of what's going on there? You're, you're, you're seeing artist after artist come out with these open editions. And the thing that's, you know, a couple of things really stand out to me. Like the first is Lou Cress, you know, Day Lou Cress, awesome artist, had a couple sales on Sotheby's, you know, earlier this month, they went for 25 to $35,000 you know, big win, nine sales, on eight or nine on Sotheby's big win. Then he, he takes one of his NFTs, not really that different from the ones that sold on Sotheby's and turns it into an open edition and creates a little gamification where you can burn that into other things. And, and the market cap goes up to a few million. 
So it's it's so in the one of ones you have a one of one NFT where that NFT is worth twenty five thousand in on Sotheby's, and then you just gamify it a little bit. You do the open edition. You get people excited. People can get in cheap. You you, you say you got to own all eight in order to get the next thing. And suddenly that individual NFT that has eight different color backgrounds, but it's all of one, has a market cap of two million dollars. So there there's something. There's a lot going on here. I think one is providing a cheaper price point so more people have access. Two is this complete gamification. And three is the fact that a lot of artists are using these NFTs not as an individual NFT, but as a currency. You know, so in Lucrece's case, he said, okay, we're going to, like, basically, if you have eight of these, you can get a, a one of one generative piece from me. So instead of using ETH to buy it, you're using uh, the open edition. So I think there are a few things like that. I do think the market still gets ahead of itself. Like if you look at VV checks by Jack Butcher, like, you know, right now there's a burn mechanism where you can burn them all down. And if everything gets burned, there will be three, three black checks left at the end, plus some, you know, like 3.9. So, so three black checks right now, based on the floor price, the market is pricing each of those three as more expensive than the most expensive Chromie squiggle ever sold times five. It's pricing each of those as more expensive than X copy right click save. It's pricing each of those as more expensive than the last four gold for apes times two. So I, I think these numbers, you know, they say that, that, you know, markets are a voting machine and a weighing machine. Like NFTs are heavy on the voting machine and the votes are all coming in for these open editions right now. It'll be interesting to see how the weighing plays out over time. Is Jack Butcher's visualized value check marks project something that you think should be weighed similarly over the long run to things like the highest value Chromie Squiggle, the highest value uh, Bored Ape, the highest value X Copy? I think that, I mean, one, it's five times the most expensive Chromie Squiggle. <laughs> so we're, we're already well beyond the most expensive. And, and two is it's a one of three, you know, so there are three identical ones. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think it's very hard to put something that didn't exist a month ago into that sphere. I, I think that's tough. And I think that the market just has a, a crazy amount of momentum to it. Like, that's just the way NFTs work is like, there's so much momentum. And the other thing he's doing so well is anticipation, right? Like everyone's waiting for this burn. What's going to happen when the burn? I need my bag filled while ahead of the burn, you know? And when there's that anticipation, people like to fill their bags. So, you know, I... I think it feels like a stretch to put it in, you know, more money. Like that's worth more than I think the amount of money that's been spent on X copy one of ones all put together in ETH terms. So it feels like a really rich price. I think I love Jack. We had him on the podcast. I, I just think he's a genius. And, you know, I'm all, and I think this just tapped a really, really incredible moment with the art being simple, but also just so CC zero easy to create amazingly gorgeous derives because the grid is just really pleasing to look at. Um, so I think he's doing all the right things, but these numbers feel a little bit high for me. I have a really hard time with these type of mechanics. I, I think they're fun. And if you approach it as like, I'm going to go have fun with an artist uh, and I'm going to play their game and I, and it's just a game, right? But I, I, I worry that a lot of these are just you know, we could probably go back historically now and find a couple dozen projects that have had similar type mechanics over the last couple of years that are, you know, one one hundredth of their all time high. Right. Like this, this is people are moving from game to game here. Like that's what's happening. Right. Like if you take a look at what's dominating the top um, on OpenSea right now or really any of these networks, it's every week there's a new game that hits the high. Right. Like when I say game that 
doesn't mean it's an actual like video game. I mean like some type of gaming mechanic where there's something burn related totally. or there's a future drop that's anticipated or you know you convert this to that and it I just feel like that is the name the, that that is what's dominating the NFT mindshare right now and it has been for for a bit and that concerns me. I mean I I worry that it's not going to end well and it rarely does. Like it just like People are saying, like, when's my next bag of ETH going to hit me in the face? And there's, like, this jumping around be- between, between projects looking for where the most money is going to come in and, and, and be delivered, right? And so, I don't know. I, I just I worry that there's going to be burnout at some point. And I hope that the space doesn't turn into just, um, you know, complex schemes that are dominating the, what the conversation over the long term Versus there being more real art conversation, like when when Sam brings up this idea that you know it's these in ag- aggregate are worth more than one on one X copies, which I would consider real, you know, art. Like that that's that's concerning to me that a project can appear out of nowhere. Not to say that this project doesn't deserve it over the long term if they continue to deliver and build amazing things, because like you know any game can turn into something big, and I'm I'm fine with that. Like, but I, I just feel that these are such the rocket ships. That, that that some on the way down, a lot of people are going to be left, you know, down in this in this market. And, and there, but I, most people that are playing this game probably know that, you know. The the one thing that I would just add to that, just append on to that statement, is there is a chance. I mean, like I'm, I'm not, I don't own any of these objects, and I know I've been following Jack Butcher for a long time. Uh, I've been following him on Twitter for a long time. I've been was a subscriber to his newsletter. Was a paid subscriber to his newsletter at one point. Uh, he's awesome. He's just a phenomenal brain around design and distilling down complex topics into very distinct, simple ideas, which is a very, very difficult thing to do as a creative and as a designer. And I think he's done, he's hit a home run with this, with this piece, with this project that he put together. And I would say his intent is for this to look steady state, more like a a very, um, conclusive art project and not just like a Geppetto behind the scenes pulling strings. And um, the only thing I would add is if he's able to pull that off and this thing is actually just a very uh, solid art project in whatever way, and it doesn't require some of like the ongoing maintenance that Sam was describing that is required today, I could see value accreting to this thing over a steady state. But I take your point with a 100% um, open arms, Kevin, which is you can't really say that that's been the case for a lot of these projects that have played like these fun economy games over the last two years, because a lot of them are at zero. This project in particular, um, the checkbox is like, it may very well be, you know, his intention to have this turn into an art based project, but I think people start buying in. So there's this game of telephone that happens between collectors. And I've seen this happen on projects after project where they start talking about like they're aping into this and they're, 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 they're thinking it's going to be this long-term thing when it's, it was meant just to be something really pure and honest. And then it tur- it gets like out of control, right? Not that to say that, you know, this is a 1.4 ETH floor. This is not, I wouldn't consider this out of control by any means, but like I, I, I worry that there's other projects out there that they can take on a life of their own via the community. And then it, it turns into something that, oh, great. Well, this was an, intended to be, you know, an artwork but it's it's now turned into a game that I have to keep feeding, you know. So it's it's tough. There was this project called Nyan Balloons over over two weeks, and 
really cool project. I mean, the the founder is one of the is a great meme artist. He had one of the ten years ago. He had one of the biggest YouTube, uh, most highly viewed YouTube videos with this meme, and he turned it into an NFT. And you started with a red balloon. You could con convert it into different colors, and then ultimately there was this mystery balloon that required burning like three red balloons. And everyone was waiting for that mystery balloon. And the market cap of all the balloons put together got up to two thousand ETH. You know, so again, Nyan balloons, the market cap got to 2x the highest chromium squiggle sale ever. You know, and I don't think people were thinking about it in those terms because each balloon is only, you know, one tenth of one ETH, you know, and they're just playing along. But if you actually add together how much money is kind of in these prices, that's what's said. You know, then two days before the, the, the mystery balloon came out, people were like, ah, I'm not so sure. And then, you know, went down by 80% in four days, you know, so I, like, right. and again, this, the other thing I would say, though, is that I think, you know, Jack Butcher sold these things for $8 each. You know, right. he has a 2.5% royalty. One of the, you know, no one like lower than almost anyone is putting their projects out right now. You know, he, you never know what's going to happen when you release something to the world, right? And that the world's going to go after it. And like, you know, I, 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 I give credit to him. He's like, I got all this attention. He just did, uh, he just minted something new, $10 each and, and the, all the money, uh, went to feeding hungry families in America. He raised $170,000 on that. Like, I do feel like he is trying to figure out how do I use this energy constructively? Um, and it's very hard when these prices just race and, you know, you don't know who, who you, you don't, you know, you don't know how it's going to end, but it, it is a little crazy. What's crazy to me on this one though, is that there hasn't even been a step yet. Like the burn mechanisms haven't even started yet. So this is all just anticipation and narrative. Right. Yeah, that's the industry we live in, and 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 I will say just to, to make it clear to everyone that's listening, um, not coming after Jack here when I make that statement. I'm just talking generally. These mechanics can lead to to a lot of hype, and and with hype uh, it can come the the roller coaster crash as well. So it's just something to be aware of. But um, yeah, props to to Jack for doing all that philanthropic work as well. That's that's great to hear. This is a this is a brilliant project, and I think he totally crushed it. But like, I can also draw a line back to like the design space of what was used to pull this project together. I mean, Damien Hirst's collection of 10,000, you know, uh, painted dots on, uh, on canvas. And he created this burn mechanism where you have one year to decide how many you wanted to burn, which would like play with the total of like what was left. I mean, this is a essentially a, a slight, you know, derivative of what Damien Hirst did a year ago. And Damien Hirst used a 10,000, project collection that was a generative uh, collection similarly to what Chromie Squiggles did before that and it's just uh, it's 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 I think uh, this is the beauty of art is like we're all just pulling elements from other people uh, and, t and extending it in new directions and I'll just add that it's fun to continue to watch this space unfold in every different direction with all of these experiments being tried but it always you're always able to draw these lines back in history to like the founding fathers and so it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see what derivative projects get made out of Jack's project and and where things end up going with this technology. But uh, I just wanted to add that one last note. Speaking of uh, old older projects, so that we were just mentioning a second ago, what happened to Loot? Oh man, I have not been following because that. that was one <laughs> where I I really thought the the intention. I mean, obviously, uh, Dehoff just like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind in this space. Like no doubt about that. And another, I think idea of just like pure intentions, let's get it out there. And then there was that hype cycle around what it could turn into and then derivative projects coming underneath it, you know? So it was like, 
that was one where where I lost money on, you know, because I, I I bought into this whole thing. I bought I bought some of the golden robes or whatever the hell, divine robe or whatever it was back in the day, and ended up selling it for a loss. Um, but it's 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 hard to I think as a collector, you you have to figure out which one of these projects. If I see something is starting to take off, am I early or am I buying the high high mark of this? And where is this going? Right, like. Is this a is this a like loot for example? Um, I I know it's it's got a great community around it, and and I, I'm sure there's active projects going on there. But like you know, it's it's hard to say. Ten years from now, is this going to be the new standard, and will this be the genesis piece of a way that where games are developed, or is it just something that's fun for now, and we're just like experimentation, right? And I think the jury's still out on that one. And so I think that's going to be the case for a lot of these projects. Is this a new trend that is the beginning of something new and special and novel? Or is it just an experiment that'll die, die you know, three months from so, now? So that's, that's a so hard I think the pre- like, So, dude, this is such a great point. And I think the sad reality is loot, the principles of loot are actually probably where the future of games will exist. Yes. Even if loot itself goes to zero. And so, like, I think the thing to remember is there can be these amazing primitives that get born out of this technology that people try. It doesn't mean value should flow back to them. It means you have to have a critical eye in terms of how does a divine robe that's written divine robe on a black JPEG turn into something valuable in the future. I mean, there's a lot of execution that needs to go into that. And so there's a chance that that execution isn't paired with the object itself. And so this object is probably going to trend to zero over time. Even if this idea of doing a free mint that anyone could claim to form a community in real time, globally, 24-7 over the internet, is how these future games get created five, 10 years from now. I'll play a fun little thought experiment with you. Okay, I close my eyes. I'm in a coma for five years. I wake up. I don't want to be in a coma, but that was a bad example. I fall, I fall asleep for five years. I wake up. And someone says to me, hey, Kevin, you've been out for five years. Guess what? Loot was the beginning of what became known as generative on-chain defined attributes that power all of games now, uh, all of these, these Web3 games. And they're trading at uh, $250,000 a piece because it was the Genesis piece. I would be like, okay, sure, that's fine. I buy that. Totally. Right? Like, to- I, I agree with not, you. That, that still would not shock me. That would not me, shock you know me I mean? either. I think that's totally, totally a fair point. Although, yes, that wouldn't shock me either, but you're, you're going to have to hold your bags for a very long time. Oh, for sure. Uh, that's, that's more than five years. Yes. That's a 10-year bag hold, but, maybe 15. But right? I think you're bringing up a great point, which is, Sometimes these theses are right that people come up with. They're just not right on the timeline. They're right on the direction. Maybe. So when we were into punks, when you got into punks at the very beginning, I, I was very fortunate. I was picking them up for like five bucks or whatever. They went up like crazy, not crazy, but maybe they traded it's a, a great example or whatever. Great example. And then they died for like a year and plus, right? There were just nothing going on. And then boom, everyone's like, this is the OG project 10,000. They defined everything. Like it was defined the ERC 721 standard. Like, All right. let's go. You've ch- and then, You've changed yeah. my mind, dude. Loot could be that project. It could be. I'm it gonna hold be off. Trading at half an ETH right now. <laughs> I'm gonna hold. Let's go. I'm gonna hold off. But dude, I I don't disagree with you. That thesis could play out at some point in the future. All right. My mind Sam, my mind has been loot. my mind has been changed a bit on this. Loot is not where I expected this conversation to go, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we keep moving on? Let's do it. AI art. What's new in the world of AI? Well, dude, this is actually a fun one. So like. Kev, you and I have talked a lot about AI art on this show for a year. 
And you, I think you flagged this for me and before I think most folks around, listen, these models are increasing in their ability, their impact on the art world is going to be felt more and more over time. There's probably a play here to go back in time and play around with some of like these early creatives who were using these models. Six months ago. Yeah. And, and like I was buying up AR cause I knew you, this is where it was you going. You nailed this one, and Kevin. And I salute you for that. Um, because like now we've seen in the last like 30 to 60 days, the AI art movement is just like picking up steam. And it really happened as a result of like chat GPT and open AI and a lot of these pro the stable diffusion coming into market into focus and people playing around with these tools over the last three or four months. Um, but it's clear that there's just a growing appetite for how this technology is going to be used and its impact on art will be felt in a very massive way over time. And it's almost like we're in the caveman drawings on the wall phase still. Um, but even, you know, six, seven, eight months ago, the work being created even a year or two ago, I think people are starting to turn back and look at those as being kind of important steps in the direction of this movement. Definitely past the caveman on the wall drawings. It's true. <laughs> it's getting pretty it's good. True. You have like eight people in an image and one of them doesn't have legs. I find like that always happens. There's always like something. Look at the hands like, and look at the look at the legs. It's true. Um, one thing I'll say though is, you know, it was, it was, you know, we had we had Claire Silver on the podcast, who I think is one of the most yes, kind of under agreed. spotlight in focus artists in this space. And it was super interesting talking to her because she was one one thing she was saying is that there's never been more people attacking AI art. Um, you know, and, and all these newer AI artists have to deal with so many people just attacking the medium of it. And at the same time, I'm looking at her floor price for her, for her brain drops piece. And it's gone from two to six, you know, or it's at five and change. And it's almost like this conversation is creating value, even if it's from all over the place. The best art is always controversial. Mm -hmm. Like that's just the nature of it. You know, like when the, that's always been the case historically, yeah. it's like, there's an argument back and forth. It's not art. It is art, blah, blah, blah. Like it's just a banana, like whatever it may be. And it's just like, boom, that's art, right? Like that's that's what I think is so special about AI art is it's causing that controversy, which I love. So I just want to highlight a piece here. This is early Robbie brought. This was just a few years ago. Look at how horrible it is. Hmm. Like this is like <laughs> this was this was done training GAN models. And this was one of the very first AI art pieces uh, you know, on Super Rare. I picked this one up a while ago. It's in my long-term storage now. Um, I needed to delist it, actually. I had it listed at like $3 million or something crazy. I, I kind of, like, it, it's, it, I think these things, like early examples of AI art, whether it be, you know, Robbie Brott or whether it be Pendar or Claire or a few others, I think they're just going to be insanely collectible. Do you guys own any, any of these artists? Yeah, I do. And um, I would say, an so there's a, a great founder, his name is Justin Trimbell. He was very early art blocks, huge chromie squiggle, diehard fan. He's just an OG OG. He's an ape hooded punk on Twitter. Uh, he runs a platform for AI art called Braindrops. It's braindrops.art. Yes. And he saw this trend happening before most. Uh, I think he launched the platform about a year ago. And the artists that have run through Braindrops are just the who's who of like the folks who have been at that intersection of Web3 and AI art. I mean, the original three folks who launched on Braindrops um, were Gene Kogan, Brain Loops, Pindar Van Armen, Podgans, and Claire Silver Genesis. And since then, he's had just a number of amazing, amazingly talented AI artists who work on Braindrops. Uh, so I've been collecting these works for the last, let's call it six or seven months. Uh, and there's actually a new drop coming up, which I'm pretty excited about, called uh, Life in West America, which I just am 
uh, pretty enthusiastic about. Um, oh, it's so beautiful. I um, threw it up on the screen here. I don't know if you yeah, can see it. Look yeah. at it that. is fucking awesome. Um, it is. Super it's, good. it's really cool. And it's, I mean, it's a, he calls it post photography, diving into the complexities of the American landscape, drawing inspiration from the early days of American color photography and the visual language of traditional photography. Um, but very, all of this, you know, generated by AI, it's like a road trip of old photography, but you'll, you'll, I mean, you'll see these imperfections in the, in the work with like extra limbs, you know, sticking out or, you know, like more than five fingers or, uh, the, these artifacts of like where these models are today being applied to this work is just so striking and powerful to me. Uh, so I'm excited about this piece. It hasn't launched yet. I think it's coming out in about a week. Uh, but this is one that I would sh surely flag for the audience as a, as one that I'm pretty enthusiastic about. Yeah. If you're listening oh, to this, I consider brain drops to be kind of like the, uh, art blocks really of, of AI art. It's definitely worth going to that site and looking through some of the older collections, see if anything resonates with you. And if it's, if it fits into your budget, cause if you're looking to collect early AI art, I would say just looking at those artists and then digging into their individual portfolios and things they've launched is a good way to find high quality AI artists for sure. Like the work is amazing, but to your point, you can tell like this person, this person here has some issue with the legs. Like one of the legs is off and it was actually this image that made me think, think that in the beginning, like this number, it's weird. Like the numbers are, have a hard time being written up, up. In the, so it is kind of interesting as someone who knows nothing about it to see where the, those imperfections do show up. But um, no, I mean, some of the, like Claire had a contest uh, among her followers and just some of those finalists, you really, yeah. it, it really is just jaw dropping and it's stunning. And I think it, it's worth it to go onto these platforms and to try to create some AI art. Cause then you realize how hard it is. You yes. know, it's, it is extremely challenging, I, even though it feels like it could be easy, you know, and Claire always compares it to, to how people thought that photography wasn't a real art form in the beginning of cameras. Like, you know, it's yes. too easy. I mean, they're calling like prompt artists and prompt engineers now, like the people that have, like my buddy runs a prompt hut.com, which allows you to like basically leverage these prompt artists, their keywords, because it's all about the keywords, right? And oftentimes it's like 30 words that go into a prompt that feeds into the AI that gets, that creates these beautiful images. And if you don't know the secret keywords, uh -huh. you're not going to get the output, you're, the desired output you're looking for, you uh -huh. know? So it's a, it's, it's a fascinating new genre of art. It is. The other piece is like, you know, this is another thing that Claire mentioned is, is she'll take images that she's already done and feed them into a model and say, I want this to be like 30%, you know, of what you right. 70%. Like there are multiple <clears throat> dimensions to it. Um, some of the purists actually say like, you know, that's not true AI art. The true AI art is just using prompts. But, um, I, I think when, when talk like just hearing about all the different steps that go into it, make you realize why, like I can't do this. And, and she, and she can't. Yeah. Um, should we talk about Pindar's new drop? Let's do it. Pindar just does so many unique things from building robots that do paintings to like, you know, he's a multidisciplinary kind of artist spanning many different skill sets. And I would say that, you know, his latest drop, um, quantum dreams is, is this, uh, this artwork that was actually generated by observing atoms on an actual quantum computer. And I mean, it's just, it's so nuts. Like Pindar is just a, a brilliant mind in this space. Yeah. He's awesome. Uh, I, I, I've mentioned this on this show before, but I've done a couple calls with Pindar in the past and he's got his rope, his AI robots behind him that are painting work while we're on the call. He's just, he's a tinkerer. He's brilliant. He's hilarious. Uh, where's he based by the way? 
That's a great question. I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, we should get him to come to proof of conference and set up his robots yes, and do some live painting. That would be, okay, that him. would be awesome. I thought he was Dutch originally, but from the name, but I think on his bio, it says that he's American based in the, based in the United States. But, um, it's such cool stuff. Pindar is definitely one of my, like Pindar and Claire, and I, you could probably throw a couple other names in here, but in terms of active AI artists, they're the tops um, for me. They're my two faves. Yeah, but I mean, Helena Saren is another one who I think is going to be getting her, you know, her flowers here over this next year. She's just been, you've been giving flowers out on this. Episode. I have. Twice. Is this a new term for you? Yeah. I got I got to give my flowers out, but, uh, Helena is one. And, um, We'll 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 have to talk about her on, on an upcoming episode because she's definitely one to keep an eye on. This is an Absolutely. old school Pindar piece, but I'm just showing on the screen here a self a self portrait that he trained his robots to actually paint of themselves from 2006. But this was Dude. his his most <laughs> sold for over 100 ETH on Super Rare. What a you know the the pictures of him training robots that are actually with brushes. These aren't robots going on so Photoshop. Good. You know, it's just uh, he's had such so a good trajectory. Yeah, Pindar is actually in D.C. Just got word from our, our awesome staff behind the scenes here. He's in D.C. So, Before we move on, we've got, yeah, Corporate Trash, th- huge thank you for helping us with some of these. Uh, oh, dude, yeah. Can we, can we give a shout out to Corporate Trash really quick? Uh, yeah, she, she's amazing. All right. Corporate Trash has made our job way easier on these shows. Uh, she's flagging all sorts of great stuff for us. She's um, working behind the scenes with Mao. So I just want to give a, a thank you to uh, Corporate Trash, who has a, I think it's a fuzzy as... Uh, the profile photo on Twitter, but corporate trash is, uh, is, has been so helpful over this last week. Yeah. We got to throw up a little lower third or something to link her or Twitter up. Um, okay. So before we move on, uh, real quick, um, proof is doing an artist profile being released next Tuesday. Justin Mazel, my co-founder proof, uh, interviews McBess, who is the artist behind the dudes, um, who released an NFT project called cellmates. Now this is you know, if Justin is doing an interview, this is his first one, I think, if ever. Uh, he's really pumped up about something. It's his first one, right? Yeah, Mal, yeah, it's his first interview, and and Mal says it's a fantastic uh, interview. Let's let's look at a quick little clip. That scene when he's in his underwear. Oh my no god! Music. Uh, that was that was something for sure. Yeah, yeah. we're like in the uh, the real Nicolas Cage Renaissance year right now. I feel I feel like it's yeah. or at least the era. It's coming back. That's, that's his era. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, excited about money. that. <laughs> He's got a couple <laughs> castles. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't have castle problems at this point? Fair enough. All right. So definitely go and check that one out uh, being released next Tuesday. All right. Should we move on? Uh, one thing that's that's huge, a big, I mean, it's probably the biggest story of the week for sure, is is Doodle, Doodles moving to flow, right? And, and what they've what they've done here. Um would love. I'm not a doodles holder. Are you guys doodles holders at all? I'm a doodles holder. Yeah, I'm a doodle holder too. Just on one and one duplicator. Uh, did not get the boxes. I mean, I think I think if you listen to Jordan, who's the founder, all you know, he did a, a podcast with Carly Riley over a year, I believe, over a year ago, maybe a year ago, where he was talking about how the goal, you know, and everyone talks about being the next Disney. He did too, but you know, it's, it's just the idea of just being a global brand that people recognize, and that's kind of the bet with Doodles is that they're building this band, brand that families like, that kids like, that had TV shows, has all these different forms of media. Ideally, that value accrues back to OG Doodles holders, and I think what they recently did though was basically you could take a duplicator 
and apply it to a doodle and it would create a bunch of wearables. Uh, and those wearables are anything from like a sock to a hat to like devil horns or whatever's on the doodle. Plus there's a bit of mystery because the, the doodle's only like shoulders up and they're giving shoes and you know other, other things that you can't see and that kind of ma makes the process a bit more exciting, can add a little bit of a gambler's premium, something like that. But this was kind of one of the first things they did to, to move over to try to be a little bit more mainstream, which was move it over to Flow. If you wanna go buy one, you can buy it with your credit card in US dollars. Um, that was the goal. I think right now you're at a stage where the only people who seem to be buying, first of all, like the wearables have not been all that liquid uh, and the only people buying are probably doodles holders because I don't think like, there just isn't an audience right now for paying $30 for, you know, for socks for a doodle uh, who aren't already in the project. But I think the goal over time is to do more and more to make this stuff more accessible to more people. Uh, and, you know, I talked to Austin who recently joined the company and he's really given a great voice to, to doodles on Twitter and just a really good person. And, you know, he's just like, there's a lot more coming. There's a lot more coming. And, you know, I'm excited to see how, how it kind of plays out over time. The way that they're approaching this project has always been less about optimizing for the current existing few million people who have interacted with NFTs and digital objects over the last few years, and more about how do we actually optimize and build a product for the next 10 million people who don't know anything about Web3, who don't have a Web3 wallet. How do we build a product for them? Because that's how you influence culture. and That's how you change the status quo around these digital objects. When it comes to censorship resistant stores of value, I want my digital objects to live on the most secure blockchain on planet Earth. And right now, this is a number of reasons why like uh, the wealth has aggregated around the Ethereum blockchain. It's because it is this it, ha it's, it enjoys the highest security guarantees and you're paying for it when you, you know, send a transaction or, you know, you mint an object at a, a price that seems relatively high you're paying for it to be a denominated by the most by the ether currency, but then also uh, to live on block space that is like very scarce and expensive to pay for. Um, and in exchange, you get like this very secure asset that lives on this chain. Now the trade-off is like, that is not really a product or a job to be done. That's conducive to getting tens of millions of people involved into a project, right? Like it's very expensive, it's slow, it's cumbersome, it's difficult to use. And so if I think about it on a spectrum, there's no question to me that creating a product that moves a little bit further away from those high security guarantees, that censorship resistant blockchain, where things are very expensive and things are very secure into something where maybe the end user doesn't really care as much about censorship resistant or security guarantees, but cares more about buying something that looks more like a product or a service as opposed to a store of value, that different environments can be cater can like cater to that job to be done that are probably better for that job to be done than Ethereum L1. And that's why I think the role of things like Solana and Polygon and layer twos like Arbitrum and Optimism and Flow Blockchain are gonna play a massive role in the future. And so when I look at this move, the, there's two things I'm thinking. The first is, well, it's unfortunate because like, I like the fact that doodles and my duplicators and the boxes are all denominated in ETH and it lives on this chain. But the other part of me is like, well, okay, they're obviously optimizing for a use case that will bring to bear use cases that aren't, um, can't really exist on this environment. They can only really exist on a different environment. And I should be willing to tolerate some of that, um, like, 
trade-off knowing that like the end state of these objects could actually be more valuable if they're able to pursue these lines of effort in a way that's effective. I think we have yet to see like there's a lot of execution risk baked into that model, but I think could be positive as we look back on on this move over the next few years. The thing I'm curious about with with Doodles is I, I buy everything that you said and I get wanting to move to a chain that, well, kind of. I mean, so, so I guess the question is, you're saying they're going for the masses, the mm-hmm. next 10 million people, right? Yeah. Okay. So if that's the case, and and I'm not, I'm not. This is not a jab at them. I, I really, truly want to know the answer here. Yeah. You can't go for the next 10 million people when your floor price is 10k plus USD, right? right. Like that's just not going to happen. And so why move chains? Like to 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 change someone's outfit is two dollars in gas. Let's call it if you optimized or whatever it may be, maybe three dollars, whatever. Like if you own own a ten thousand dollar PFP, if you want to change the outfits five times over in a year and it costs you 20 bucks or whatever, 25 bucks, like who cares, mm-hmm. right? Like you have the, the the net worth to be able to pull that off or the disposable income to pull that off. Are they saying that Doodles 2 is going to be, and this is the question I have, is it going to be something where it's like hundreds of thousands of, of base bodies that are going to be, you know, $100 a piece? Like what, what's the play here to getting to massive adoption? What do you option? think, Sam? I'm not sure of that last question, but I do know for sure that they want millions of people to be buying NFTs and they are fully aware that those people are not going to be buying doodles. You know, like obviously maybe you work your way up to a doodle and, you know, maybe you buy these wearables or those, you know, some other lower cost items are interesting to you on flow and, and you get acquainted with the ecosystem. And I think the view is that just as more attention gets focused on this brand and if you're you know, and people are are getting used to these lower cost NFTs, getting into that, that like ultimately over time, like the grail will be owning a true doodle. And I think that that's the, I think that's the bet you have to be making um, when you buy one of these. And I, I think to Derek's point, like, yeah, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this space is that people are here for so many different reasons. You know, there's some people who came to NFTs because they love uh, decentralization and they love the Ethereum blockchain and censorship resistance and all these things. There's some people who are here because they like they because they're really into art and this was the next step to the, for art. And there's some people here because they like collecting baseball cards and this felt like the next thing to collect and don't care about anything else. You know, at least what I like with Doodles is you know what the bet you're making is. You're making the bet that they're going to build that big brands will ultimately accrue value to to an nft something we really don't know and you're also making a bet that this is the team to execute on that vision and if you don't like that bet then this is not the nft for you and there's so many other ones you can buy i do appreciate that they're taking a, a unique perspective here and trying something you know that others aren't they're not just copying someone else's playbook they're going after their own thing mm-hmm. here which is which is all we can hope for right like we're all just like feeling our way out here so one question i have for you sam uh and i i'm curious like one of the things that has always been the big no-no in the space is modifying a collection after you release it. Because when you modify a collection, you're scare- you're screwing with people's known scarcity and rarity around objects. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm just making this up because you can't do it, but like that board ape you thought was super rare becomes less rare because people can buy in addition to make theirs more rare, right? Like what happens here with the base doodle? Like it, it, are they creating a new NFT here that is your modified version of this doodle? Like... Because does this not screw with some of their rarity and scarcity here? I, mean, I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure like what the technical next step here is. Um, like, can you like swap the devil wings onto? There's my doodle back there. Could I like throw the devil wings onto him? You know, like I, I don't know if 
I'd have a hard time imagining that that's what they're going to do, um, but I'm not entirely sure. And I, it's I a good question. It's interesting. It's a good question. It's Ken. interesting though to think about if you built a project from the ground up like that. It's much harder to do with a pre-existing collection where people have uh, feelings around known scarcity and rarity of of their collection. But if you started with a base, like if the next like, whatever Doodles three, if they decided to do, however they go mass adoption, is you know, a $500 base that they sell or whatever that is just like a blank canvas. And it's like, it's not about getting that rare, extra rare one. It's like buying that and then you push the rarity and scarcity onto the individual attribute level. Like that's that's pretty interesting because now it's about, okay, those devil wings, you know, those are worth 10 grand a piece or whatever, right? And so it's it's taking it out of the the base and, and into the attribute. Uh, there's something there that worth worth it, worth trying, worth experimenting around. We get yeah. to watch and learn. We get to watch and learn. These are all great points you're bringing up, Kevin. Uh, and um, yeah, I share many of your questions. And I think at this point, they've made it clear as to like the directional bet that they want to make. And I think now it's like, can they execute or not? Um, and we'll we'll kind of just all watch and watch and learn as things progress. I, I I do love that about this space, man. It's like when I watch other projects, because you know we have our own internally at Moonbirds, there's things we are considered like sacred that we wouldn't touch and other things that we're trying to dabble with. And if something is nested, you can change these attributes, but if you unnest it, it rips them out. And like, there's a lot of things to think through. And I always appreciate projects that are just pushing things forward. Like yeah. who cares if you get it wrong? Like at least you're trying something new, yes. right? And so that, that I always have respect for, like, and, and so it's, it's fun. It's fun to see this happen and I'll be, I'll be uh, paying attention for sure. Guys, this was another killer episode. I love these sessions. Sam, it's always great to get you on these shows, man. And no, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always, it's so fun to get to chat with both of you. So thanks. Awesome guys. Well, this is a, another great episode as, as Derek mentioned. And of course, uh, lastly, I think worth mentioning is, um, people want to follow you up. Derek E D W S on Twitter. You got it. And then Punk nine zero five nine. The one and only on Punk nine zero five nine in the house. Getting all my numbers right now. I love it. All right, see you guys soon. Take care, gang. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five star review. Thanks so much. Take care.